My name is Sam Williamson. I'm a friend of Sung Kim's. He and I have been friends for about seven years. And occasionally he asks me to come and speak. And Grace has been going through a series the last four or five weeks entitled, Don't Waste Your Life. And we've talked about don't waste your family, don't waste your calling. We've had a few different don't waste sermons. Sung asked me to come and talk today about don't waste your work. For 25 years, I was in the software industry. I owned a software company with two partners in Ann Arbor. And, uh, you know, I feel humbled under this title because I think that I could much more easily teach you how to waste your work. And yet, I, I am very appreciative to Song of inviting me to speak on don't waste your work because I do believe there's an invitation from God, an invitation to intimacy with him and understanding, and then an invitation to have a life of impact. I, I want to begin by reading the beginning of Psalm 144, which is a psalm written by King David about 1000 BC. David said, Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. He is my gracious love and my fortress. He is my strong tower and my deliverer. He is my shield and the one in whom I take refuge. O Lord, what are humans that you care about them? Or mortal man that you think of us? Human life is like a breath. Its days are like a passing shadow. Stretch out your hand from on high and rescue me and deliver me from the mighty waters, from the power of enemies whose, whose mouths speak lies, whose right hand is a hand of friendship, whose right hand of friendship is a right hand of falsehood. I will sing a new song to you, O God. Upon a harp of ten strings, I will play to you. Rescue me and deliver me from the hand of enemies whose mouths speak lies and whose right hand is the hand of deceit. I mentioned that I worked in the software business for 25 years. We had a small company, and, but we had a very expensive product. And... We wanted our name to get out in the industry, and in the industry, there were a number of different conferences and events which invited different speakers to come and speak, and we encouraged our employees to speak at these because it gave our name as a company a little bit of prestige, and I would be invited to these. I'd spoken to many of those, and they were normally small breakout sessions, Q&A, 15 or 20 people, and it was, it was not uncommon for me to speak at those. One day, a client called me up and asked if I would speak that fall at a conference in New York on CRM. And I agreed, I wrote it down in my day timer, this is before smartphones. The problem is, is I did not know what CRM meant. Now, acronyms flit in and out of the industry like hummingbirds, and I wasn't very worried, but I wasn't very prepared. And the day before the event, Thursday afternoon, just shortly before my flight to New York, I got a call from my friend who had invited me to this CRM conference, and he says, you know, Sam, I, I, and he was a good friend, he said, Sam, I'm very excited, I'm excited to hear you speak, I've never seen you speak, give a keynote address before. 
and an icy grip squeezed my intestines. I was the keynote speaker at CRM, at a CRM conference, and I did not know what CRM stood for. I imagined a room this size, a little bit bigger maybe, with scores of scorning CRM experts, whatever that was, <laughs> mocking me, deriding me. I, 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 you can imagine with me, can't you? The professional humiliation I anticipated. I Googled CRM, printed out five articles, the top five, put them in my briefcase, dashed to the airport, and I got on a plane bound for New York. And I'm an introvert. I almost never speak to the person next to me on the airplane, as it should be. And <laughs> I think nervous energy, adrenaline, anxiety, pushed me beyond my introvert nature, and I talked to the guy next to me. It turns out <coughs> he was the professor of public speaking at either Harvard or Yale. He had the chair of public speaking. And I said, you know, I hate to do this to you, you know. Uh, but, you know, I'm talking, I'm giving a talk tomorrow in New York, and, you know, would you mind just giving me some free advice? And he says, yeah, yeah, that's fine. I said, like, What's the number one key for good public speaking? He said, that's really easy. Know what you're talking about. <laughs> this is exactly the way the conversation went. I said, what's key number two? He said, love what you're talking about. And I think he anticipated my anxiety. He sensed my anxiety. And he said, you know, Sam, let me tell you. He said, when Churchill became prime minister of England in 1940, after Neville Chamberlain stepped down, Churchill was 65 years old. He said in a radio address, he said, I feel like my whole life has prepared me for this moment. He said, the best public speakers believe their entire life has prepared them for this moment. Now, that did nothing to answer my impending doom. But I will say that he sent me on sort of an existential, he put me into an existential crisis. I had one crisis replaced by another, and that is I was sitting there on this plane, it was roughly 1995, and I was worrying, what is my whole life about? I really thought, what is my whole life about? Is my whole life about this one CRM speech? Is this what God has prepared me for my entire life? And it really sent me onto a multi-year quest to say, what is my life about? Let me tell you a little bit of history before that infamous conference. I was raised in a very Christian family. My father was a pastor. He was a really good pastor. He was born to missionaries in China, so he lived in China until he was about 15. My only aunt and uncle in the world were missionaries in Ethiopia. My oldest brother right now is a seminary professor. My other oldest, second oldest brother is a missionary in uh, the South Pacific Islands. So I was in a professionally religious family. And, and on our 12th birthday, we had a, 
a ritual that we had in our family, and that is we would ask everybody to pray for that person on their 12th birthday and just ask God to say some words to them. You know, what would God say to this person? And on my 12th birthday, I got four cards from my father, from my, my parents, my grandfather, my oldest brother, and one other person who I never remember. But four, I remember it was four cards, and each of the cards had almost the identical words. It was Sam. God has called you to listen to his people and to speak to his people. So I said, okay, I'm going to be a minister or a missionary. I'm cool, either one. So when I went to University of Michigan, I first started physics because I thought I'd be a tent-making mission. I could live overseas and be a, I wanted to be a nuclear physicist. But while I was studying physics, I took a history class. You know, you had to spread, get the, whatever you call that. What do you call that? We've got to take a bunch of other stuff that you don't want to take. Um, I took an intellectual history class. And intellectual history is the study of what are the hidden ideas and the beliefs that a culture has that they don't even know about. It's like, what's the hidden heartbeat of a culture? The German word for it is, what is the zeitgeist? What is the spirit of the age? And I just was fascinated by this topic. I love the idea of understanding a culture, understanding it deeper than it might have understood itself. And so I switched majors from physics to intellectual history, for which there were very few jobs. But I graduated, and there was a mission organization that wanted me to work, and I lived over in Europe for three or four years, working with college students, and I loved it. I, I really loved the thing. And while I was there, one morning I had a prayer time just a normal, sort of boring prayer time, actually, but it was a prayer time, and I felt like God just speak to me and say, Sam, don't do mission work now. If you do, you will make a disaster of your life. And I was stunned. I mean, this is what I had prepared my whole life for until, you know, from age 12 to 25. But I left the mission field, came back to Ann Arbor. As I said, there were no jobs in intellectual history. I got a job at a software company, and and I, and I really liked it. I actually did well because what I lacked for in programming, I could do some programming, what I lacked for in programming, I actually got by understanding the client's needs. My intellectual history degree taught me to hear what they were wanting, sometimes before what they knew what they wanted. So I actually did okay in the job. Two or three years into it, I was asked to go talk to a prospective client, spend a week with them, understand their needs, and then present our software. And I had never been in sales. But I did that, I spent a week with them, I came back and presented the software. They chose us, it was their biggest client to date, and the company promoted me to VP, Chief Product Manager. If you're in the software industry, you know what the Chief Product Manager is. My job was to design the software. I was three years out of being a missionary with a degree in intellectual history. Two years, it was actually about 18 months after they promoted me, our owner at the time, who was Tom Monahan, the founder of Domino's Pizza, decided he didn't want to own us anymore, and he approached the three executives, me and two other guys, and said, would you buy this company from me? So five years after I left the mission field, I own a software company. I, who have a degree in intellectual history, own a software company. And when, and, and by the way, one of my partners had a PhD in social work and the other partner had a degree in mechanical engineering. None of us had studied software at all. And as a result, and we were, as a result, we were humble. You know, we all felt 
I was just there at the right time. I was, at the, I was there at the right time in the right place. It was nothing that we did. Not one of us had ever dreamt of owning a company. No, we had never dreamt of being in software. None of us, and, and, and so we just felt a humble gratitude. Something inside us, I think, was gracious before the Lord. But today's topic is don't waste your work. When I say work, I mean the daily activities. It could be you're an engineer, it could be you're a student, it could be you're a full-time parent, a stay-at-home mom or dad. You could be a student, a physical therapist, or you could be a security guard. Or you could be a tennis pro. In the 70s and 80s, Chris Evert was the premier female tennis star. To this day, she participated in more Grand Slam finals than any other professional tennis player, male or female. For about 20 years, she held the record for the most Grand Slam wins of any tennis player, male or female. She was utterly unstoppable, fantastic. But as time moved on, she got old and she had to retire. She couldn't keep up with the young tennis players. And when she retired, she gave an interview to a magazine, to Vogue, and in the interview, she said, I had no idea who I was, or what I could be away from tennis. I was depressed and afraid because so much of my life had been defined by being a tennis champion. I was completely lost. Winning made me feel like I was somebody. It made me feel pretty. It was like being hooked on a drug. I needed the wins, I needed the applause in order to have an identity. Now what she's saying is in all of our work, be it designing a bridge, being a city planner, or a stay-at-home parent, in all of our work, there is a work beneath the work. There is a work that is driving us. There's the external work of playing tennis and being a, being a tennis champion, and there's the internal work of getting an identity from it that's driving her, that left her empty when it was gone, left a vacuum. The book of Genesis describes it this way. There was a set of people living in a city called Babel, and they wanted to build a wall, and they should build a wall. In those days, there were a lot of marauders who made life dangerous, and so as a city, you built a wall for protection. But what Genesis says is they said to each other, come, let us build, a let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. The single biggest mistake we make in work, the way we waste our work, the single biggest way we waste our work is when we use it to make a name for ourselves. There's the outside activity obvious. Parenting, engineering, supervising, cooking, whatever it is. And then there's the deeper dimension. It's one thing to say, I just wanna write a great song. There's another thing to say, I will be the greatest songwriter ever. It's one thing to say, I just want to raise my kids well. I just want to give them good careers. It's another thing to say, I am a great parent. I parented great kids. 
And do you see this distinction? There's an external activity and there's an internal drive. That internal drive is when we name ourselves. Let us make a name for ourselves. I loved owning that software company. And when we were able to buy the software company from the owner, we were all humble. But you know what happened over time? We began to take credit for it. We began to say, we worked really hard, didn't we? We were smarter than those other guys, weren't we? Something corrupted the activity. We began to take a name for ourselves. We began to get our identity, and, and we worked harder than we ever have. For 20 of my 25 years, I was gone three days a week traveling, and I shouldn't have been. I told you I can teach you how to waste your life and your work, but I shouldn't have, because I was getting a name for myself. Let me show you some ways that you can get a name for yourself. How do you know when you're getting a name for yourself? First, you claim responsibility for your decision. I went to U of M, I, you know, I'm a great lawyer, I'm a great doctor, I'm a great teacher, I'm a great security guard, doesn't matter. We take credit for where we are, but we, we, we don't have that much control over our lives. What if you've been born in the 14th century in Tibet to a, four, to a poor shepherd? You wouldn't have been that doctor or that lawyer. There's so much of our life out of our control, and as we try to take responsibility, claim responsibility, it's because I worked so hard. Well, who gave you that discipline to work so hard? I have four kids. Some of them are very disciplined. Some of them are not so disciplined. They came from the same genes. We don't, that's, when we take, claim responsibility, we're, we're, we're building a path to destruction. The other thing we do is we belittle others. You know, we're a parent, and our kids are doing great. They come to church, they sit in the pew, or the chairs, and we look at all the other kids running around, spilling coffee, and we say, man, why can't they discipline their kids like I do? Why aren't their kids more disciplined like ours are? We can, we can parent or we can take, we, or we can belittle others. This is a sign that we're getting our name from parenting. We lose gratitude. Gratitude is a beautiful, beautiful virtue. And we no longer are grateful to God or grateful to our parents or grateful to our spouse. We say, I worked hard. Or we crumble before obstacles and setbacks. What if your identity is from being a great engineer and your company folds? You get laid off, it's a tough time. All of a sudden, everything that you worked for has just crumbled. You're on a path to disaster. These are indicators that we're getting our name, that we're making a name for ourselves. Like Chris Everett said, I needed the applause in order to have an identity. Very often our applause is self-applause. Way to go, Sam. You're a great software exec. These are paths to destruction. These are ways that we waste our work when we use our work to self-name, to get our own identity. The writer of Ecclesiastes who keeps saying everything is vanity. I don't know if you've read Ecclesiastes, all is vanity, and by vanity, it just means sort of nothingness, worthlessness. He says, it's chasing after the wind. He said, all is vanity under the sun. What he's saying is, in this earth, what we see and the work that we do, if that's all there is, life is vanity. But God says there's another dimension. 
God says there are two dimensions to our life. There's what he is doing, and there's what we see. What we see is under the sun, but there's something that he's doing. So I told you that I was stuck on this plane on my way to New York to speak on CRM, which I didn't know what it stood for, and I pulled out the five sheets, five articles that I'd read, and it turned out in my industry, CRM stood for Customer Relationship Management. In other industries, it stands for something else. In aviation, it stands for Cockpit Resource Management. But in my industry, it was Customer Relationship Management. And the thing is, is we had designed Customer Relationship Management into our software for more than 10 years. I was the software architect that designed customer CRM into our software we just gave it another name. God literally had prepared me my whole life, my career, for this moment to give this talk. No booze were thrown, neither were tomatoes. But it moved me, the idea that God himself had prepared me for this moment. And I began to study it. Because there's always two dimensions to our lives. There's what we see our day-to-day work, writing code, writing marketing copy, parenting our child. There's what we see, and there is a deeper dimension of what God himself is doing in our life. David was a shepherd. He was the runt of the family. That's the word they use in Hebrew, the runt. So he was left in the fields tending sheep while his older brothers got all the fun action in the war. They, you know, they went to the war college and they studied to be great generals to defend their nation. He was stuck out tending sheep. Now while he was out tending sheep, he was bored, so he sort of learned how to ride, throw the slingshot. And as a result of that, he actually conquered the greatest individual champion that Israel ever faced the story of David and Goliath. And later on, David reflected on it. What David said is in this Psalm 144 that we read earlier. David said, blessed be the Lord, my rock. He trained my hands for war and my fingers for battle. David never went to West Point. He didn't go to the Air Force Academy or the Naval Academy. God himself had trained David to become a leader of his people. God had trained me to be the head of to no CRM, even though I never knew it. I had given it a different name. David had named himself as a shepherd. God says, I'm gonna make you the shepherd of my people. I guarantee in your life there are two dimensions. There's the name you're giving yourself, and there is a name that God has for you, what God himself is directing underneath the surface. It's a pattern throughout scripture. Joseph is a prisoner, excuse me, he's a slave and then a prisoner. He says, I'm a prisoner or slave, that's my name, that's my identity. And God says, no, I have trained you to become the prime minister of Egypt. Esther wins the world's first international beauty contest. And she says, I'm just a beauty queen. And God says, no, I have trained you for just the right moment to save my entire people. Esther gave one of the greatest phrases in scripture. She said, if I perish, I perish. God had trained her to be a champion, and she thought she was a beauty queen. God is always working in your life and in my life in ways that are beyond what we imagine. 
beyond what we think. You know, we sang a song earlier, he is good, good. There is a God who protects us even from ourselves, even from our self-naming, because he is good. Each one of you, I, want, I, I urge you to consider, you think you have an identity. God says, I have something deeper and richer for you. I don't know what it is. And I'll tell you, your spouse doesn't know what it is either. But they sometimes have a greater hint than you do because they see you from the outside. God himself has trained us. This is why I love this other verse where David in the same psalm says, rescue me and deliver me from the hand of enemies whose mouths speak lies, whose right hand is the handshake of deceit. I deceived myself. My greatest enemy was my self-naming. It was my self-centeredness, my self-naming, where I said, I am a software exec. And God said, no, I have something more. God, David thought he was just a shepherd. God says, I have something more. In 1984, I was in the mission field, and I felt like God say, leave. 1982, sorry. Go to the business world. I was in the business world for 25 years, and I finally actually liked the business world. And 10 years ago, I felt like God say, Sam, now. I was at the peak of my career, and I felt like God say, sell your company and do mission work. I thought I was in a software exec, and I felt like God says, no, I have trained you now to be able to speak to people one-on-one, to be able to write books, and to speak. And literally what I'm doing, when I was 12 years old, I was told you're going to listen to people, God's people, and speak to them. I spend half of my life one-on-one listening to people. I spend the other half of my life writing for them or speaking at conferences and retreats. God fulfilled it, but I never would have imagined it. Now, wouldn't you like to believe that God has a plan for your life that's deeper and richer and purer and more beautiful than the life you have right now? And if you think your life is wonderful, God says it's going to be 10 times more wonderful. Wouldn't you like that? Anyone want to reject it here? Nah, no one wants to reject it. But how do we know? What assurance has God given us? See, Jesus had a purpose, and we tend to think of Jesus as a great teacher, a miracle worker, an example of a moral living. He's the one that went to the marginalized and cared for them. Jesus said, I had a different purpose. He said, now my soul is troubled. What can I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It is for this purpose that I have come to this hour, and that purpose was to die. Our problem is that we're all self-naming. And our self-naming leads to destruction. I didn't spend as much time with my kids. I didn't spend as much time with my wife as I should. Our self-naming leads to trouble. And what Jesus does on the cross, he says, I will take your trouble for your self-naming so that I can give you a name. We can self-name or we can receive a name. We need a name. There is something inside us that wants to be known. And God says, I can give you a name. You are my treasure. You are my beloved. You are my child. You are my bride. You are my heirs. You are my delight. You are my joy. I will sing over you. 
God says, I have an identity that will enable you to go into work and not use your work to name yourself, but use the name I have given you to bring blessings to others. Instead of giving to get, you've gotten from me that you can give. We know why Jesus came. He came to die and save us from sin and our self-destruction. But what did he save us for? God said, I saved you to be in a relationship with me. I saved you so you can have a conversational, personal, intimate relationship with me where I can name you myself. Years ago, I feel like God said, Sam, I've prepared you for this moment. And now he uses that moment to prepare you for this moment. Friends, God has prepared you himself. He said, I've died to take your shame, but I've lived so that you can have a relationship with me of intimacy, connection, where I can name you. We have two choices. We can live our life under the sun, or we can live our lives under the sun of God. Let's pray. Father, your ways are not our ways, and your thoughts are not our thoughts. They are deeper than our thoughts. Your ways are richer than our thoughts. And we say, take our life, and let it be always, always for you. Father, we let go of our self-naming, and we accept your naming for us. We are your beloved. Father, you are our beloved. Through Christ our Lord we pray, amen.